0: Area 941 podcasts are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org.
1: This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky. And we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. John Irving is one of America's most successful novelists. His first novel, Setting Free the Bears, was published in 1968. His novel, The World According to Garp, published in 1978, was an international bestseller and made John Irving a household name. He solidified his reputation with The Hotel New Hampshire, Cider House Rules, A Prayer for Owen Meany, and A Son of the Circus. Several of his novels, including The World According to Garp, The Hotel New Hampshire, and Cider House Rules, became successful Hollywood films. I had a chance to interview John Irving in November 2009 for his novel Last Night in Twisted River. We talked about that book. And about his career as a novelist my guest is john irving whose latest novel is last night in twisted river earlier novels include the world according to garp cider house rules a widow for one year a prayer for owen meany i believe 15 books in all uh, oscar winner for best screenplay for cider house rules john irving is one of america's most distinguished authors this latest novel I was thinking as I was reading it that this is more autobiographical than other works. And then as I began doing my research, I realized every single one of your books has that tinge of autobiography. Not only that, but this book sometimes seems to be a metafiction. John Irving writing as Danny Angel writing a novel about his life that make any sense to you?
0: It does. I think that's um, half true or, or, or half um, right. This is the third novel where a main character is a writer, The The World According to Garp and A Widow for One Year being the other two. But in those novels, I was conscious at least of, of writing about a kind of amalgam of writers I knew. I was not uh, aware that I was writing about myself or didn't intend to. In the case of Danny Bacigalupo, I not only gave him my biography uh, as a writer, so to speak, that is, uh, he goes to the schools uh, I went to at the precise times I went there. I even gave him what amounts to my process as a novelist, that is, how I do it. Those elements are not only autobiographical, but factually Accurate to my own education as a writer, so to speak. However, I just as consciously gave Danny Bacigalupo a life that I have never had. It is rather the life I fear. I made everything happen in his life that has never happened to me, but which I am afraid of ever happening to me or to anyone I love— And I'm not so sure that you couldn't make an argument that when a writer writes about what he or she fears, that is in some other, if not literal way, also autobiographical, perhaps more revealingly or deeply autobiographical in a psychological sense, because the things I fear are the most compulsively repeated in my novels. The Death of a Child, thank God it's not happened to me, but think of how many times I've written about it. And in Danny's case, everything Danny is afraid of happening does happen. Everyone he loves that he's afraid he might lose, he loses. That hasn't happened to me. So this novel is a a strange kind of hybrid for me, being very superficially or merely factually autobiographical in terms of the writerly biography for Danny, but being the opposite of the life I've had. I went one step farther in his character too, in that I purposely gave him the kind of childhood and adolescence that makes him, even as a young man, want and need to live more in his imagination than he will ever be comfortable in his own skin. Danny has a rather unhappy and ill-chosen life. He has an actual life that it seems to me would make anyone flee to or uh, take uh, comfort in the life of the imagination.
1: In Danny's own words, and these are John Irving's words as well, he comes up with the last sentence of the book, works backward... And then has the whole book when he sits down and writes, which is your own process. In this case, because you're talking about this is the life you fear, that means that the entire time that you were composing the book, knowing the ending, this is exactly what you were going for.
0: Yeah, that's perverse, isn't it? <laughs> that, that is a very apt description of the willful perversity of the way in which I write. Um, I think that's very well said. <laughs> I couldn't argue with a word of it. There is something uh, deeply sick of, about this um, process of evoking your demons. To write about things that you hope never happen to you must be, um, in part, an instinctive hope that if you write about them, they'll never come true.
1: Is it almost like a talismanic effect? You're kind of putting the talisman of the bad things in the book so that they don't happen in real life.
0: Yeah, but obviously now that this is my 12th novel, it doesn't work <laughs> because I have done nothing to abate these recurrent fears, uh, witness how recurrent they are. Yeah.
1: <laughs> they keep coming back. I mean, you know, there's actually on Wikipedia a chart indicating those elements that repeat the bear that pops up in several books vienna which doesn't pop up in this book the flatulent dog and so on and so forth
0: you know, yeah I, I saw that i thought it was a very funny list i mean funny and it amused me but but when whenever anyone says to me uh, what's with the with with the farting dogs i have to uh, chide them a little bit and 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 say that's That can't be a question from a veteran doggone.
1: Right. It gets mentioned because, you know, it's part of the John Irving list of things that appear. Now, I know it's it's almost as if, you know, a lot of writers include characters from other novels in their books and have a continuity, and in your case, it's a different kind of continuity, but in a way, it's the same thing.
0: Well, very much in a way, uh, it's the same thing. In this novel, there's a... um, a skydiver, a big woman, whose nickname is Lady Sky. To me, she's a repeat character over four novels now. She's uh, Emma in Until I Find You. She's Hester in A Prayer for Owen Meany. She's um, Melanie in The Cider House Rules. Always this um, physically large, uh, sexually aggressive, very sure of herself female character who stands in marked contrast to the Younger, smaller, less sure of himself, male character. In fact, when we first meet these women, they seem like a sexual threat even to that male character. But they always prove to be not only the character's uh, genuine friend or only friend, but even a kind of rescue figure, even a kind of protector. It would be logical to assume that she in some way must be autobiographical too, since I keep reinventing her. But the truth is, I never knew anyone like that. Yet, I would argue that I must have wanted to know <laughs> someone like that. And and anything that stands in the category of a repeat invention is in its own way autobiographical at least psychologically
1: well there also seems to be as you talk about that i realize that the character of pam in some respects is an older version of that same character
0: very much so yeah very much so and well and um i don't think uh, you know the woman who's killed in the in the early chapters injun jane is uh, entirely separable from six-pack pam either but what you're saying about the process Of starting with the last sentence and making a kind of roadmap of the story uh, back to where I believe uh, the novel should begin, so that my process is always a last sentence, which I get first, and a journey back through the story to a first sentence, which I get last. And that process can take as long as a year or 18 months. It has taken uh, that long. The advantage to me of that process is that when I begin the actual writing of the book, I know everything about the action of the story. I know who the characters are. I know when they meet and how. I know if their paths cross again, if they live or die, and if they die, where and how. It is the mere skeleton of a story, like the scaffolding of a building that you haven't made yet. It's completely absent of the detail. But I know where I get that from. I mean, the novels I read as a teenager that made me want to be a writer in the first place were those always plotted, usually long 19th century novels with developed characters over a not insignificant passage of time. Dickens, Hardy, and among my fellow New Englanders, Melville, Hawthorne. Those were the storytellers the narrative storytellers that interested me as a kid in becoming a writer no one contemporary no one even remotely modern so that at the time I wanted to become a writer I think it's fair to say that all of the more sophisticated elements of writing a novel were beyond my comprehension but the first element that first interested me was plot. And so I always begin with it.
1: John Irving, comparing what you're saying to what a lot of other writers tell me, now some writers start at the beginning, go to the end, they may know the end, but everything in the middle, of course, is a process of usually what they call discovery. In this case, would you ever find the way you do it constricting? I mean, what if a character, a minor character, suddenly yells at you and says, I got to be more than that. And I'm not, I'm speaking metaphorically here. Do you have the space to accommodate that?
0: Well, the key word to your question is minor. If there have been small changes in the scheme over the years, they have been minor and they have involved exactly, as you say, very minor characters where I, I see something in the detail, in the writing of the detail I see a way to get more than one purpose or one use out of a character in the initial scheme of things who seemed uh, heretofore very minor. But the major characters and the major things that happen have never changed. And over 12 novels, that last sentence has never changed either, not even a comma. Ironically, in the case of last night in Twisted River, I've never had... A story in my mind, in the back of my mind at least, for as long. I've known for twenty years that I wanted to write a story about a cook and his pre-teenage son who become fugitives. Why? I just saw it. I I saw a kind of frontier town under the Canadian border, somewhere in northern New England as long as 20 years ago, it could have been a logging camp. It might also have been a fishing village, uh, a lobstering town somewhere near the Maritimes. Its proximity to the Canadian border always mattered to me. And when I say a frontier town, I mean simply the kind of place where there's one law, one guy, a bad cop. That was essential, obviously, to uh, to the story I imagined. But as long as 20 years ago, I even knew why the cook would have uh, a pre-teenage son, a 12-year-old, because I wanted that boy 50 years after the the running, 50 years after the repeated fleeing, I wanted that boy to have become a writer and more significantly uh, to have had, as I said before, the kind of life that makes him cling to his imagination in lieu of ever finding the ability uh, to have a real life that is very gratifying.
1: You formulated this idea in your head about 20 years ago. Why wait? Was there something that triggered now?
0: Well, it's just a habit. I knew there was also something I didn't know about this story. There was a third man, uh, someone who befriends the cook and uh, is a kind of second father figure to the cook's son. Uh, I knew it was a a loving but a conflicted relationship. I didn't know why it was conflicted or how conflicted it was, but I knew that there was an essential element about his childhood or his past that this boy didn't know and that what the boy didn't know was also contributive to the imagination that he clings to or flees to. It was a, a piece of what makes him a writer, what he doesn't know. And I just didn't know what it was. I never begin a book until I get that last sentence and have made the roadmap I've talked about. And the last sentence for this novel was not quickly forthcoming. As long as the idea of the story was has been there, you know, I began other novels that had been in my mind far less long Novels that I knew much less about, but those last sentences were more quickly forthcoming. This one just didn't come to me for the longest time.
1: And eventually Ketchum, the other main character, did come to you.
0: Yeah, he did. And once once Ketchum came to me, that resolved the uh, issue. Uh, regarding what kind of frontier town this was. Ketchum came complete with the logging camp history. He was a river driver. I needed, in Ketchum's case, to have an actual reason for Ketchum to be the radical libertarian he is. I needed Ketchum to have an actual reason to despise all authority from government on down. The very way of life that he reveres the river driver, has been taken from him. The logging industry is in transition as the novel even begins. They last uh, drove logs down rivers in uh, New Hampshire and Vermont in the late 50s and early 60s. The last log drive in the state of Maine uh, was in 1976 down the Kennebec uh, River. I remember seeing those log drives as a kid, as a teenager, uh, both in my state and uh, next door in Maine. And I've not talked to a single river driver of Ketchum's uh, generation uh, who doesn't believe that driving logs down rivers was a better way of doing things, despite what the environmentalists or anybody else said. They believe that what river drives were replaced with was both a less efficient way of moving logs from the woods to the mill and a much more expensive way. There's no two ways of thinking about it uh, from their points of view.
1: So at that point, you can create Ketchum, his philosophy, and of course, his philosophy needs to interact with the Baccia family.
0: Exactly. You know, there's a kind of prelude to these last sentences, which I don't understand very well myself, but I've just sort of been listening to it for 12 novels now, which is, in most cases, I seem to sense what the tone of voice of that last sentence is before the sentence itself materializes. I know whether it's melancholic, whether it's lyrical, and if it's a, uh, a line of dialogue, is it a refrain from that same line of dialogue that we've heard before in the novel in a totally different context? such as the ending to a widow for one year or the ending to the cider house rules. Those are refrains, things we've heard before. I have a sense of that tone of voice before I get the sentence. And one thing that confused me and and sort of sidetracked me in the case of last night in Twisted River was that the tone of voice of that last sentence was always one of elation, even happiness. And I kept thinking, I must be wrong here. I must be... um, mistaken about something, because I knew the story. I knew that the only main character who's left standing, in whose point of view I would have to be, is Danny. And I kept thinking, well, knowing the life Danny has had, what does he have to feel elated about? What's he excited about? He's had a very lonely and, at the end, reclusive existence. I couldn't understand that his elation was about his writing, even though I knew he was a writer. I missed that. And then, you know, it was January 2005 before that sentence kind of clicked in. And after that, this novel, the actual writing of it, was surprisingly quickly forthcoming.
1: It seems to me that the problem, the crux of the book, is an event, an accidental death, and everything that happens thereafter relates back to that in one form or another. Correct. And that particular accidental death and the aftermath, particularly the aftermath, what happens to Danny and his father, has to be believable. You have to make it work. And that seems to me, as I'm reading the book, one of the cruxes of the book, making sure that we as readers believe it.
0: That's another thing I didn't make up myself. That's one of those things I got from those 19th century novels, that the more improbable, the more unlikely an event or a course of action is, the more vividly descriptive, the more visually and sensually credible the details have to be. You make an improbable event believable by the vividness of the language, by the sheer physical visual force of the language. I got that from Hardy. I I got that from Dickens. In the first chapter of The Mayor of Casterbridge, a guy gets so drunk that he sells his wife and daughter. He'll never recover from it. Nor will we, the, the readers of that novel, ever recover from it. And yet, the sheer physicality of the detail of that hay trusser getting drunk in a fair tent is so... Well, today we use the word feebly cinematic. You can see every detail of it
1: to such a degree that you don't doubt it. And this goes back in your writing to the beginning. Certainly, Garp has several elements of it, of that improbability being given a reality by the detail.
0: Well, you know, in order to be convinced, you have to love detail. I mean that as a reader as well as I love it as a writer. The other element, of course, of those 19th century novels that was so appealing to me was the detail, the overlayering of, of of detail to such a fantastic degree. But, you know, I remember teaching American literature courses and half of the students I taught Moby Dick to did nothing but bitch to me about how much detail there was about the whales. And I couldn't think of anything to say except, why did you take the course? Why don't you take a course in <laughs> shorthand or something? You don't like detail? Don't read fiction.
1: John Irving, we've discussed a little bit the detail in The Logging, which, of course, you did your research on. There's also a tremendous amount of detail about the restaurant business and about recipes in the book because Danny's father, Dominic, is a chef, is a cook, cookie. Is this research that you did or do you just happen to be a great cook?
0: Perhaps another reason uh, that that this novel... The writing of it, what was itself um, fairly fast work for me, was that there often is for me a sizable, uh, formidable obstacle between myself and my ability to write a, a story because of the research because I have to learn about something that is completely foreign to me. The medical detail in the Cider House rules, right. uh, all the stuff about uh, what an uh, obstetrician gynecologist was doing in the 1930s and 40s that was a stretch for me. Uh, the medical detail in A Son of the Circus, uh, Dr. Darawala's background in orthopedic surgery, uh, his interest in uh, dwarfism that was tough that really slowed me down. But in this case, both the logging and the cooking were things that I'd grown up around. When I was a kid growing up in southern New Hampshire and in coastal Maine and working in the uh, apple orchards there, my cousins were in the logging business in northern New Hampshire. My uncle was in the logging business. Uh, My favorite first cousin A boy I went to school with. We're the same age. Uh, He's still in that business. And he was able to put me in touch with some uh, old river drivers who are still alive and talking about it. So that uh, he made that world very accessible to me. What I didn't already know about it, uh, my cousin could help me with and did. As for cooking, I started uh, cooking uh, seriously as a teenager. I had many jobs in restaurant kitchens uh, through college and in in graduate school. All through elementary school and high school, my best friend's mother, who was uh, Swiss Algerian, she was a fantastic Mediterranean Provencal style cook, lots of tomato based sauces, um, black olives, uh, cooked everything with olive oil, wonderful cook. I just was into it at a fairly young age. I am the cook in my family. I have a lot of friends who are in the restaurant business. And these restaurant chefs were able to, you know, let me hang out with them in their kitchens. And what I didn't know, they backed me up on. You know, they were early readers of this manuscript. And if I made a mistake with a red wine reduction, they were going to tell me about it.
1: <laughs> did, you, uh, did you play a Julie and Julia idea of making the recipes yourself?
0: No, but I have a good Julia Child story to tell you. Um, when I was living briefly in Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts, I was in one of those city grocery stores one day, and being a very short person, I'm only five six, five six and a half. You know, city grocery stores are an obstacle to me because you know the raisin bran is always uh, ten feet over your head or right. something. And I'm there at this store, sort of leaping for a box of cereal, and this very tall woman came up behind me and said, "Oh, may I help you with that?" And it was <laughs> Julia Child, and I loved her books, and she was one one of the most concise and she's simply one of the best writers uh, as a cookbook person that I ever read. And even having more affinity for Italian cooking than I did for French, her books were simply so well written that I read all of them. And so I said, oh, I love your books. And I introduced myself and she said, oh, my husband loves you. He's read everything you've written. I don't think she'd read a word, you know. (laughs) But I spontaneously on the spot invited her to dinner and much to my surprise and and terror for a short period of time she came and and, and she and her husband were were wonderful uh, it was the only time i ever met them
1: the character of danny bachigalupo danny angel first of all there's a comment made in i think it was the baltimore sun at the very beginning of the book a character named angel dies in the first paragraph the Baltimore Sun writer said something about that being a fallen angel. Was that just serendipitous, or would, was there some kind of metaphor going on there? Well, I, I didn't see the piece you're talking
0: about, so um, I don't know really all the, all the meaning that was in, intended uh, in it. But it's a name that, that has appealed to me before. Uh, Homer Wells, the orphan in um, the Seider House Rules, has a son he named Angel. Danny Bacigalupo, when he is in need of a nom de plume, chooses the name Danny Angel in homage to this young boy who uh, dies in a log drive in the opening sentence of this novel. And um, Angel is a, is a very common uh, anglicizing of uh, Angelo, a very popular Italian name, uh, Sicilian dialect, Angelu, it would be called. And Danny and his dad are destined to uh, spend some years in the Italian north end of Boston, where they um, have a, a relationship with um, the dead boy's mother, Angel's mother. Last but not least, I suppose it's a name that I remember fondly from my, one of my favorite writers, Hardy, the character of uh, Angel Clare in Tess of the D'Urbervilles. So I just have some personal associations with that name. And the boy who who makes this story come about, so to speak, the boy who tells them he's Angel Pope from Toronto, when in in, in fact he's uh, Angelo del Popolo from Boston, you know, he's an instigating factor. I don't think I meant anything, though, uh, heavenly or reverential <laughs> by it, you know. Uh,
1: the name Bacigalupo... <laughs> Did that come full-blown in your head, or was there something you were driving at there? Is there something you saw or family member? Or?
0: Well, I have a, one of my best friends. My oldest friend is a, an Italian cook and a very good one. grew up in the north end of Boston. He was kind of my tour guide to the north end of Boston in the period of time I'm writing about. And um, it was with his help that I uh, chose the name uh, Bacigalupo. The pronunciation is such that Uh, It should be written Bacacallupo. It should be a name with two Cs in it. But the second C is so often, especially in Sicilian dialect, the second C is pronounced uh, as a G. So that over the years... With all the Italian immigrants who've come to Boston, Baccia Calupo becomes Baccia Galupo. And in the phone directories in, in Boston, you'll see as many Baccia Galupos as you see Baccia Calupo's. So it was a good name. And the meaning of the name is not misplaced or coincidental in any way. It means Kiss of the Wolf, which is the name of the last restaurant in Toronto that Dominic gets to work in before he's
1: killed. And since you're working backwards, you're almost getting the kiss of the wolf before you get to the name.
0: Well I am. Yeah. I am definitely getting the kiss of the wolf before I get to the character. Absolutely.
1: So so in a way we we almost have to read to see what John Irving is doing on a more conscious level, we would almost have to read the book backwards.
0: Someone asked me the other night, I don't forget where. Someone said uh you know, how, how do you do, why do you do, how, how, how can you do as much foreshadowing as you do? Because there is so much foreshadowing. And I think, well, you know, since I know what's going to happen years before I get to the scene, I kind of have nothing else to do with myself while I'm getting there. You know, <laughs> the foreshadow is just a way of keeping myself awake, I think.
1: I kept thinking of Merrily We Roll Along, which is a play and then later a musical where the action happens backwards. Mm-hmm. In the musical, you get the um, reprises before you get the actual melody. Right. In a way, that's almost what you're doing. Well, it's
0: very much, I mean, reprises, as you say, refrains matter a great deal to me. And and I mentioned this before, but I've even chosen to use some of them as endings, phrases that are almost commonplace by their repetition over the course of the story. Kings of New England, princes of Maine, that refrain in the Cider House Rules, for example. Vonnegut did that a lot. He was your teacher. He was my teacher. And and after those uh, two years in Iowa, by coincidence, we lived uh, in the same place at the same time a few times. And and so he was um, for a while my my neighbor and and my uh, good friend, uh, too. I miss him. I miss him a lot. But there was a kind of safety in having Kurt be my mentor, having Kurt be the guy who read my my first novel when it was uh, still a work in In progress because he knew and I knew that my love was with the 19th century. He knew that the 19th century was the model of the form for me and that the writers I was consciously or most consciously imitating had been dead for a hundred years before I even read them. He knew that um, Dickens, Hardy, they were my actual mentors and um, there was a kind of safety in that. Because as consciously as I did imitate them or sought to imitate them, I knew that I would never sound like them because 100 years after the fact, the language had changed. And no matter how hard I tried, uh, I wouldn't uh, sound like them. There was also a kind of safety in working closely as I did with Vonnegut because he was so different as a writer than I am. And I knew that from the the get-go. He liked everything about short sentences. I liked everything about long ones. He used to disparage my, my um, use of the semicolon, and I used to, with, with uh, fondness and, and glee, always managed to find at least one or two semicolons in his novels. He had to look pretty hard to find them, but, <laughs> but uh, he committed them occasionally, and I would be the first to circle them and say, ah, on page 120, I see you, whatever.
1: John Irving... There are a lot of opinions about the nature of readers, writers, and interviewers that are given by Danny Angel uh, and, to a lesser degree, by Ketchum in um, Last Night in Twisted River. Can we conclude that those are pretty much your feelings, or are they feelings of a fictional character?
0: I think it's dangerous to conclude that they're all my feelings, especially given the... um Really strained uh, circumstances that caused Danny to sort of leave his country of birth and, and go live in, in in Canada, and the degree to which his um, personal life is invaded by the publicness of his uh, personal tragedies. So that he is a kind of prey to the media to a degree I've I've never been. Catastrophes happen in his life. Thankfully, they're not in in mine. So I I think you have to be a little careful there. Someone asked me, and this is a related question, someone said, well, you've written 12 novels. Is this your third political novel? The first two being A Prayer for Owen Meany and um, The Cider House Rules, which I I certainly wouldn't deny. They are political novels, and, and I would define a political novel in this way. The points of view... Of the principal characters in A Prayer for Owen Meany, Owen Meany's view of the Vietnam War, Johnny Wheelwright's view of Ronald Reagan, their points of view are inseparable from mine. They are my mouthpieces. In A Prayer for Owen Meany, those two characters speak for me. It's also true that in The World According to Garp, everything Dr. Larch believes about a woman's right to an abortion is what I believe. Larch is my mouthpiece for abortion rights. I would I would describe uh, that novel not only as a a political novel, but I I think um, it could accurately be called a a polemical novel. It's a novel as an argument, so to speak. But I think you've got to be careful in um, in last night in in Twisted River, although it covers some political ground because of the the time span of the book, although it is the second novel I've written in which an American citizen decides he'd just be happier to stay in Canada and not come back to the United States. In, in Danny Bacigalupo's case, this happens for wholly different reasons than it happens in A Prayer for Owen Meany. And I would decidedly say that Danny's politics, which are almost non-existent, he's an almost apolitical character by the end of this novel, I'm a much more politically active person than Danny Bacigalupo is. I don't agree with Danny politically about a lot of things. And certainly Ketchum's radical libertarianism. Love Ketchum as I do as a character. Sympathize with Ketchum as I do as a character. I can't say that I would like to live in a country run by Ketchum or or by Ketchum. So that there is not a character in this novel who is my mouthpiece politically. It's a social novel, certainly. It is set in a real time and a real place over more than 50 years. But um, I still think it's true. Of my 12 novels, only Owen Meany and House* are political novels.
1: Well, I think the reason some of that comes out is because of those statements about a country that would reelect George W. Bush. The comments regarding stolen elections they seem to certainly, the comments about W's, reflect what you've said about W.
0: Well, that's certainly true. But, you know, disliking George W. Bush is, 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 hard, is hardly a unique uh, uh, <laughs> well, political perspective, um, not even in this country, but certainly not around the world. Mm. And for two characters who end their lives uh, living in Canada, as uh, the cook and his son do— the loathing of uh, george w. bush is 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 simply a matter of fact.
1: Is the um the element that drives the plot, Constable Carl's chase of the Bacigalupos, How much of that comes from Les Miserables? does any of it the the idea that he's a Javert, or is that something that is obvious but not really important?
0: I never read Les Miserable. I don't okay. know the story. I've read about it. I've heard it said that I must have been thinking of that. It's interesting when people write those things. They never call you and ask you if you've read the book. You know, sorry, I missed it. You don't have to know very much about the subject of violence begetting violence to recognize where the inevitability of these stories come from. From the moment the cook and his son run, I think it's evident to any reader that the cowboys come in after them. It wouldn't be a very good story if he doesn't. I think it's uh, inevitable that the cowboy is going to find them. And I think every reader knows it. It's a chase story. How good is a chase story if the guy never catches up? You know, it's a showdown novel. What kind of a story is it if the showdown never happens? Of course it's going to happen. There's a surety about that as there is to the Oedipus cycle. You know, you kill your father, you sleep with your mother... Uh, the rest of the story probably is not going to turn out well, right? And it doesn't. It certainly wasn't any surprise to the audience that Sophocles had at the time. It's not going to turn out well. Even Antigone is going to be doomed, right? Although none of it was her fault. I mean, it's, it's a factor. So there is certainly a, uh, an ancestor in American culture to the Constable Carl, uh, the cowboy character, and it is the Western movie which I grew up on as a teenager. You know, the guy comes home, somebody's raped and murdered his wife and stolen one of his children. Well, we know it's going to happen. He's going to find all the guys who
1: did that. Have you ever thought about, about screwing with readers' expectations by not giving them the inevitable?
0: I, I don't know that I know how to do that. I don't like tricks or sort of wanton surprises. What would we say, you and I, if, if we had the opportunity to interview... Shakespeare, would we say, so, Will, what is it with you and royalty? What is it with you and these dysfunctional families? Are every two out of three daughters bad? <laughs> you know, I mean, things repeat themselves, right? It's, it's interesting. All, all I'm saying is um, the pattern of inevitability, it works for me. I, I, I like it. I remember how simply odd I was I was 15 when I read Great Expectations, and I thought, well, here's this boy who believes that Miss Haversham, this wicked old woman, jilted at her marriage, left at the altar, living with the rotting remains of her wedding cake and hating all men and boys. This boy believes that she is his benefactress, that she has paid the money to put him through school and made a perfect little snob of a London gentleman out of him. And we, the reader, of course, we go right along with it. We believe it, too. Although there's every evidence in our face that Miss Havisham hates this boy and all men. We buy it. We buy into it. When, in fact... His true benefactor is the convict uh, who escapes from the prison ship in the first chapter. Magwitch. Magwitch, who uh, accosts this boy, Pip, in the graveyard and says, I'm going to eat your liver if you don't go home and get me something better to eat and a file to cut off my leg irons. And that's the guy who's uh, paying for Pip's proper uh, English uh, education. That story made me want to tell stories like it and by like it i mean stretching all credibility stretching all probability but making you believe it nonetheless
1: john irving in looking over the 12 novels obviously the question what's your favorite usually comes down to the most recent but let me, let me change that a little. If you're looking at your novels, and you're looking at the one that you think you realized the original conception better than the others, is there one? Can you think of that, or, or, or is that kind of too much of a meta question?
0: No, I don't think it's too much of a meta question. It's, it's, it's just that it, it, it's hard for me to separate the, the workmanship— uh, from w- what you call the original c- conception, and what I mean by that is, is 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 simply this: my novels are as much about the entire construction itself, the structure of the story, as they are about anything the novel could allegedly be said to be about. Uh, with the exception of *Owen Meany* and *Cider House*, I'm not much of a of a message novelist. I am as devoted to the construction of the story as I am to anything that happens in the story or to anything that can be extrapolated from the story. And as a consequence, I always say in answer to to this question or questions like it, no, I don't have a favorite, but I do believe, as the tailor who makes the suits, as the contractor who builds the hotel, I do believe that any one of the last seven novels is better built, is a more complete construction, is more fully designed or realized than any one of the first five. Obviously I'm not talking about readers' opinions here. I'm speaking from the point of view of the designer, from the point of view of the, the craftsman. Craftsman, yeah. That's that's strictly from that. Anything beginning with The Cider House Rules, which was my sixth novel, is just better made somehow than any one of the first five. And the reasons for that, to me, are obvious. I did not become self-supporting as a writer until after my fourth novel, The World According to Garb, for the writing of those first four novels. I never had more than an hour and a half, maybe two hours a day, to give to my writing because I had a couple of other jobs. I was supporting myself and a family, and I never thought I would get to be a self-supporting, much less best-selling author. It didn't happen until The World According to Garb. And I remember I used to say to my friends who were doctors or lawyers, what kind of a practice would you have if you got to see patients for an hour and a half every day? What kind of a lawyer would you be if you got to see your client? Uh, or be in the courthouse for an hour and a half every day. I said, no, I want to do this for eight, nine hours a day. I want to do it seven days a week because it's long novels I want to write. It's plotted novels I want to write. It's novels about the passage of time that I want to write, and they take a long time. And so then I got what I wanted. I got what I wished for. And I was really down on myself for the writing of my fifth novel, The Hotel New Hampshire, because I couldn't do it. I couldn't stretch my... My concentration span passed maybe two or three hours a day. And here I said I always wanted to write for eight or nine hours. And when I was given the opportunity, the first book I tried to do it, I couldn't do it. It wasn't until Cider House, the sixth novel, that I had simply had enough practice, enough time to stretch my day so that I really could work for seven, eight hours at a time. I really could work when I wasn't traveling. I really could work seven days a week. And I think it shows. I mean, ask an athlete who imagines he or she wants to go to the Olympics. Tell them they've got two hours a day to work out. How are they going to fare against somebody who's got eight hours a day to work out? Not very well.
1: Do you see then... Um... I mean, stretching that analogy, because you do, you do have known for your, the wrestling, do you see any analogy then between writing and sports? Or am I stretching this too far?
0: Well, I, I wouldn't generalize quite uh, to that degree. I would say simply in my case that my, my mother was, was smart to sort of direct me to wrestling, to introduce me to the local wrestling coach when I was uh, 14 years old. She saw that I had a lot of... Um, Anger issues and 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 that it might be uh, um, a worthwhile outlet for me to have um this sport in my life it was, but more importantly for my writing, it was the first discipline that I actually applied myself to uh, i I began keeping a journal I began writing at the same time I began wrestling and of course, at that age, you can make more progress you can you can see more um the development uh, athletically and physically than you ever can uh, creatively. And, and so wrestling was also the first thing I ever became any good at. And I recognized very early that it was all about repetition. It was all about a, a willingness t- to attend to small details until they became seemingly instinctive or almost like second nature. They aren't. It's a learning process. But you do it repeatedly, these small things, until you can do them in your sleep. And I think I have more stamina for revision. I have more stamina for rewriting than a lot of writers I know. I can revisit a sentence over and over again. And the longer the novels you write are, the more complicated they are the more years it takes you to write them, the more times you have to pass through them to make that voice sound or seem to the reader to be spoken in one breath, to be spontaneous when it wasn't spontaneous at all, when it was an inch at a time. But I I think I learned how to be a rewriter. I think I learned how to revise. Because of the 20 years I, I competed as a, as a wrestler. And I, I coached the sport until I was 47. So I'm, I'm grateful. I, I, I think anybody who's a writer or any kind of uh, artist or craftsman has to be grateful to whatever it was in their early life that, that made them a disciplined person. Because, you know, you, you're going to have to stay to it, you know.
1: John Irving, uh, you've had several novels turned into portions of novels, turned into film. Uh, You've written one book about the Cider House rules. Uh, Danny Bacigalupo at one point is adamant about having a screenplay before he even considers having a film. Is that your view now? No. Not at all?
0: No. That's one area where I, I, I would say... In the area of politics, I have many more opinions than Danny Bacigalupo. In the area of movies, um, I don't have as uh, intractable uh, uh, an opinion as, as Danny. I, I, I'm almost indifferent to the process of, of adapting novels to film. I, I don't believe that any novel is somehow incomplete because a movie is never made from it. I think that may be a kind of triumph for the novel to, between you and me and I'm usually not interested in that process. Many of the times when I've been asked if I wanted to write a, a, a screen adaptation of this or that novel I've simply said no. I, I don't you want to go ahead and do it yourself fine but I don't I don't see it. I I didn't discourage uh, George Roy Hill from making the world according to Garp but I declined at writing a screenplay, I wasn't interested in, in Garp as a movie. I didn't um, try to dissuade Tony Richardson from uh, making The Hotel New Hampshire. I just didn't see it as a movie myself. Here's why. The passage of time is something novels do really well. You can create a character as a child, which I often do, and when you see that character as a man in his 60s or 70s, or as a woman in her 40s or 50s, it's the same person. Nothing in the reader's estimation of that character as an adult forgets who that character was as a child. It's the same character. I got that from Dickens, too. You know, movies don't work that way. If 50 years pass in the course of a film, if a character goes from being a child to being 50 or 60 years old or older, how many actors are you going to have to have to play that one character. Too many. More than two is too many. More than one is too many, in my opinion. Because unlike a reader, a film audience's emotional and psychological identity to a character is to the actor. You change actors 20 minutes into the film, because a nine-year-old suddenly is a 19-year-old, you got a new actor and the audience's emotional identity with that character goes back to zero, and that actor has to earn it all over again. I'm not interested. In most cases, The Passage of Time is an inseparable, integral piece of my novel, and to adapt it as a film without The Passage of Time is throwing the baby out with the bathwater. In the case of The Cider House Rules, which I was involved with, as an adaptation at every phase of the way, I saw how to do it. I saw how to truncate, to compress the 15 years in which that novel takes place to less than a year and a half in which that film takes place. I just saw how to do it, and I wanted to be involved. I said, I can do this because I lose nothing about the relationship between that old doctor abortionist at the orphanage and his unadoptable orphan who will come back to the orphanage strictly to perform abortions. I lose none of that relationship by losing the passage of time. I don't see how to do that in most of my other novels. Therefore, I'm not interested in being the screenwriter. The only two of my novels that I am now engaged in writing adaptations for, a very long one, A Son of the Circus, and a very short one, The Fourth Hand, are... The only two of my 12 novels in which the passage of time is of no particular importance to the story, in which the childhood of those main characters is not a part of the story. We don't know anything about Dr. Darawalla as a child. We know very little about Patrick Wallingford as a child. Therefore, I see how to write those screenplays.
1: And what interests me here is the difference is that even a longer form, like a multi-part television series, would still have the same issues inv- involving actors.
0: Yeah, exactly. Whether you call it a miniseries or a maxi series, you know, whether you'd make – I don't care if you make Last Night in Twisted River or Until I Find You as a miniseries that takes three years.
1: It's going to be the same yeah, problem. Yeah, you're
0: still going to have to have, you know, five people playing Danny Galupo and three people playing his father, and you're still going to have to have um, five people playing Jack Burns you know, until I find you. It doesn't work for me.
1: John Irving, this book has come out now. Um, are you, have you found anything approximating that final sentence for your next book?
0: Oh, I was afraid you're going to get to that. I, um, normally, w- uh, when I'm interviewed about a next book, and someone asks me if I have a, the last sentence, I don't don't hesitate to to tell them what it is because I know um, it won't change. I have to say, in the case of the next one, the 13th novel, uh, not because I'm superstitious about that number, I'm not, but in, in, in this case, I have a different situation. I have two last sentences, and I like them both very much, and the one I don't choose will probably be the last sentence to the penultimate chapter, probably. But I'm hesitant to tell you or anyone else what those two sentences are, because it is inevitable that anyone hearing those sentences would imagine that they liked one better than the other without knowing anything about the context. So, uh, yes, I have it. I I, I definitely have my ending. It's just that I have two choices. What's good about the choice is that I'm in no hurry to decide because they are two different responses to the same moment in time. In other words, what happens at the end of the story is unchanged by my choice of what the 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 last actual passage is. The only other thing that's uh, complicated is that In one of the choices, there is a potential title, as there is in the last sentence of Last last Night in Twisted River. The actual title of the novel is there, as it was in uh, The World According to Garb. That's only happened two out of 12 times. It's one of those things I don't seem to be able to coerce. That is, I've tried to insert the title of the novel into that last sentence. I can't do it. I just have to let it happen as it does. But in this case, in the case of the one I'm, 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 just, I'm doing next, it's complicated by the fact that um, if I choose one of those endings, that will dictate what the title of the novel will be. If I choose the other ending, the novel will have a different title.
1: It seems in listening to you that there's a certain point in all of your work where something happens and you go... That's it. That's right. And you sort of have to wait for that moment.
0: I do. I I can creep up on it. I can um, sort of get into the atmosphere of what I imagine uh, I'm looking for. But I I don't have a record of, of being able to track how I get there. It's just one day I get it. I've been thinking about the story for a period of time. I'm lucky in that with every novel I've written, there have always been at least two, often three novels I'm thinking of, right, as the next one. And the one I go with is the one that delivers with the most assurance, with the most
1: confidence, what that
0: last sentence is.
1: You've been listening to an interview with John Irving recorded in November 2009 while he was on tour for his novel, Last Night in Twisted River. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews, either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.